Welcome to another episode of Follow the Brand. I am your host, Grant McGaw, CEO of Five Star BDM, a five-star personal branding and business development company. I want to take you on a journey that takes another deep dive into the world of personal branding and business development using compelling personal stories, business conversations, and tips to improve your personal brand. By listening to the Follow the Brand podcast series, you will be able to differentiate yourself from the competition and allow you to build trust with prospective clients and employers. You never get a second chance to make a first impression. Make it one that will set you apart, build trust, and reflect who you are. Developing your five-star personal brand is a great way to demonstrate your skills and knowledge. If you have any questions for me or my guests, please email me at grant.mcgaugh, spelled M-C-G-A-U-G-H, at 5star BDM, B for brand, D for development, M for masters.com. Now let's begin with our next five-star episode on Follow the Brand. Welcome to the Follow the Brand podcast. I'm your host, Grant McGall, CEO of Five Star BDM, where we help you to build a five-star brand that people will follow. Leading with tenacity and purpose and demonstrating clinical excellence is the trademark brand of my next guest, Dr. Gale Aluko. He has a laser-sharp focus to withstand the daily struggles of a career cardiologist and medical consultant. Dr. Aluko has an impeccable legacy of preparation, education, and clinical intelligence. Yale Aluko is the Chief Medical Officer in Ersting Young America's Health Advisory Practice. He advises health system, C-suite, and senior executives on strategy and business operation and provides insight on megatrends confronting the health industry. He is a proven physician executive and corporate leader with astute understanding of strategy that develops competitive advantage for healthcare organizations. As director of the EY Center for Health Equity, he leads EY teams in the design of customized strategy, solutions, and competency building for health sector value chain participants seeking to achieve health equity. Prior to joining EY in October 2016, he practiced cardiovascular medicine for 25 years at Novit Health a Southeast Regional Integrated Healthcare System where he led enterprise clinical integration strategy, operations management, and care delivery within the heart and vascular service line across the 15 hospital health system footprint. He obtained his MBA from Wake Forest University School of Business, Interventional Cardiology Fellowship from University of Massachusetts Medical Center, Invasive Cardiology Fellowship from Cornell University Medical Center, General Cardiology Fellowship, and an internal medicine residency from the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Columbia University. He obtained his Doctor of Medicine from the College of Medicine, University of Ibadan, Nigeria. He is certified by the American and Canadian Boards of Internal Medicine and the American Boards of Cardiovascular Medicine and Interventional Cardiology. He is a fellow of the American College of Cardiology and the Society for Cardiac Angiography and Interventions. 
He is an advisory board member at Harvard Business Review, Honeywell Healthcare Solutions, Children's National Hospital, and is co-chair of the Health Equity Advisory Board at the International Wealth Building Institute. Let us welcome Dr. Yale Aluko to the Follow Brand Podcast, where we are building a five-star brand that you can follow. I want to welcome everyone to another episode on the Follow the Brand Podcast. I'm always intrigued when I'm able to speak not only to an elder, but someone with such experience in the medical field, in the healthcare field, in life in general, that we have an opportunity to have a candid conversation with someone that has much wisdom, knowledge, and expertise. And I'd like him to introduce himself so we can get into this conversation as soon as we can, because this is going to be a real treat. You'd like to introduce yourself? Well, first of all, thank you for giving me the opportunity to participate uh, with you and have a conversation with you today. My name is uh, Yele Aluko, somewhat of an unusual name, uh, but my name uh, origins come from Nigeria, West Africa, and I am a physician. I practiced cardiovascular medicine for about 25 years up until 2016. Um, and after that, you know, when I was practicing cardiology, I was a physician leader. Uh, I actually um, engineered the first African-American cardiology practice in Charlotte, North Carolina. We formed a group of four African-American cardiologists uh, with the laser focus then of demonstrating clinical excellence in the black community amongst black doctors, uh, treating African-American and other patients to demonstrate to the medical ecosystem at the time that black professionals could do it just as well as anybody else. And it turned out that for three, four years after myself and my colleagues built that practice, we were asked to integrate with one of the mainstream Caucasian cardiology practices and then comprised eight Caucasian men. And we um, formed the first integrated cardiovascular medicine practice in North Carolina back in 1991, I think it was. Um, and, you know, my career subsequent to that led me to have the opportunity to lead that practice to be the president of that practice <clears throat> as we grew over time to become about 58 adult cardiologists spanning several cities with concentric levels, concentric circles of influence in the greater Charlotte market. And I um, eventually retired from the bedside after doing what I've just described, but also and the opportunity to be a physician leader, physician executive in administrative medicine as well. And my last role in clinical practice was the medical director and the, heart, and the senior vice president for heart and vascular services in a 15-hospital integrated healthcare system headquartered in, in North Carolina. 
2016, I retired from the bedside, and I'm now a healthcare management consultant. I have the privilege of serving as chief medical officer at uh, EY in our America's healthcare management consulting practice. Well, thank you again. No, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We're going to, because that's an illustrious career in what you just described and what you just experienced uh, as a person on this planet coming from a whole different environment in West Africa and Nigeria. I want you to take us back there just a little bit. Tell us a little bit more about your life in Africa and what prompted you to come to the United States. What was your vision and your dream? So I went to medical school in Nigeria. I went to boarding school first and and to to medical school in Nigeria. And um, my intent was to, to specialize after medical school in England, since most of our international relationships in West Africa were more linked to the United Kingdom. I wanted to specialize in the UK and I actually was set up to do that. I had an elder brother who was studying industrial design in New York City at Pratt Institute. I came to visit him on a vacation, uh, spent a few couple of weeks in New York City. I hated New York City. And then I went to San Francisco to meet a, to catch up with an old classmate, and I fell in love with San Francisco. <laughs> um, so it was then that I pivoted my lens to come to the United States to specialize. Um, while it was more intuitive to go to the United Kingdom for people that were trained in Nigeria, because my medical school, for example, was once a college of the University of London. There was an understanding of the brand from whence one came, the reputation and the caliber of medical training. Now, coming to the United States, uh, it was a culture shock to me to find out that some many people hadn't even heard of medical schools in Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was actually asked by some some you know people who I consider to be informed, like librarians in Washington, D.C., where I used to study to pass the entrance exams to get credential in America. Are there medical schools in Nigeria, in Africa? Um, it shocked me because the brand of my medical school was, was exquisitely profound across Commonwealth countries, Canada, New Zealand, United Kingdom. So coming here, um, it was a, a very quick readjustment to recalibrate one's training and to reassert one's, one's um, ideals within a system that was toxic to and not welcoming of people with my profile that happened to be African-American, but also had names that people generally couldn't remember. But be it as it may, um, we fast forward several years, decades. Um, if one has the tenacity of purpose and the resiliency, um, you know, all things can happen. So one worked hard to get into 
the residency programs and the fellowship programs, I'd always wanted to be a cardiologist. But the journey to becoming a cardiologist is long. When you, you do a residency in internal medicine once you finish medical school. Um, do a three-year residency in internal medicine, and then you do a three- or four-year fellowship in cardiovascular medicine. And I did a four-year fellowship in cardiovascular medicine. My last fellowship was very subspecialized in what we call interventional cardiology, whereby you're trained to open up blockages in patients' arteries in the heart to prevent damage to the heart muscle, trained to put pacemakers in, essentially putting devices in people's hearts without opening the chest. And I was one of the foremost formally trained African-Americans in the United States to do fellowships in interventional cardiology because it was when I was in my penultimate year that the American College of Cardiology formally acknowledged the need to have a one-year training program for, for fellows who wanted to, to practice interventional cardiology. Previous to that, it was on-the-job training. So I was in the first generation of physicians in the United States that entered formal interventional cardiology fellowship training. So one-year program, which I did in, in Worcester, Massachusetts, before embarking on my career in private practice. So I moved from Worcester, Massachusetts, to Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, and I will say that my intent was to join a cardiology group when I left my clinical training. And I will say my training was extensive. It was very broad and deep. But the honest truth is that I found it difficult to get hired. Yeah. I got jobs in places that were not desirable to, to live for me. And also at remuneration levels that were way before uh, what my worth was. So having had a, a number of interviews. Is that I want to ask you this, because I hear what you're saying. And this is a it's concerning because, you know, I was born in, in, in America. So I've only known American lifestyle, American culture. Right. You have known Nigerian culture. And I always kind of preface saying that because people realize you got to really understand Africa is a continent, not just a country. And it's a country of all kinds of different uh, uh, different groups of people. So from my from my Nigerian lens, understanding where the experience of life in Nigeria was, and then as you viewed American life as far as a point of what you thought it was going to be like, and then as you got into the reality of what it actually was like, and what I'm hearing just in your you know, speaking to me just now, that there was a huge disconnect that you constantly had to either overachieve or people didn't see you for your your, your skill set and your experience, and you constantly had to to prove yourself as you moved along your career. Well, that is a fact, and I, it's not unique to a person from Nigeria or other African countries. It's clearly the same construct that African Americans have right here, um, and there are different layers of barriers that one is confronted with that are related to 
one's race, uh, one's ethnicity, and one's background. Uh, but fundamentally, uh, it's no secret that in this country, um, there is a painful legacy of inequities across all domains of society, be it educational opportunities, being access to quality healthcare, uh, housing and economic security, access to capital for upward economic mobility. That is a fact that is undisputable. And all people of our backgrounds have the longest, all African-Americans have the longest um, exposure to those inequities. Um, and that's a reality. It is a, an uncomfortable conversation, but one cannot avoid the obvious reality that it happened and still happens. Um, so therefore, one has to develop navigation skills, you know, com compensatory mechanisms to stay in the game. And I have often said in some of my mentoring forums that every African-American person in the United States whether they are first generation or immigrant, black uh, Americans, like myself, every successful person, be it a Barack Obama or a Colin Powell or Condoleezza Rice, who ostensibly have reached the pinnacles of their individual respective careers, every single one of them and every successful black person has been denied opportunities and would have reached the pinnacles of where they reached at the time they reached those pinnacles, maybe five years earlier or 10 years earlier, if they were not African-American. But most importantly, those people have had laser focus on their visions. They've had personal resiliency and tenacity to withstand the daily, and these, you know this as well as I do, the daily struggles that one goes through as soon as you walk out of your home going to work and you put on your game face and you deal with the world and you turn up and just show up, you turn up. Well, you have turned up very exquisitely, I'm going to say it like that, exquisitely, because you've dealt with the challenges. You, you, you know who you are within yourself and what your capabilities are. Yet, those that may be around you or that you're working for or, or with may, may not. So there, there's that opportunity to then to advance. My question is this. What is the drive? What is the passion when, when things have not gone your way and you could have easily, you know what, I don't need to go through this. I could have went to the UK. You could have went back to Nigeria to practice, but you stayed here. What was driving you? Well, let me say that I wouldn't say that any of this was planned, you know, because the truth is I planned on coming here to do a, a residency in internal medicine and going back to my country to be on faculty in the university. That was my plan. Uh, it was a short-range three-year plan, and I was going to go back. Now, things happened after three years when I finished my training here, but I began to realize there was some deep complexities within the industry at home, and I wanted to specialize. So I ended up specializing. And then opportunities here became clearer. 
And one has to make a decision, especially if you're coming from an immigrant perspective, uh, as to where do you want to make home and where do you want to drive impact? There's no right or wrong answer. I've had colleagues who did what I did and went back home because they wanted to focus on the footprint of impact delivery being not in the United States. Now, for me, the, the potential as in, in cardiology that I was seeking was here. One also has to make the decision as to can you make home wherever you are? And home, for me, is where you make it. Now, if one is a physician, one is dealing with human beings and driving value to human beings by making them feel better, patients, making them feel better, live longer, driving empathy, enabling transition through death to the afterworld with love and dignity. There's no color behind that. You're dealing with human beings and human souls. So if you do that in Antarctica or in Africa or anywhere in between, my philosophy is that you're driving societal value. And my goal and my intent was to be a driver of human empathy, societal value through the healing that physicians and nurses are privileged to deliver through training. I am, I'm curious now, I'm very curious. You, you know my experience in the US. I do not know the, what, is, what it's like to live Let's say Nigeria, what would it be like if I were to say, you know what, I'm going to be a medical student in Lagos, Nigeria. How would my, how would that, how, what would change about me? What would I find different? Um, so you will find very strong medical training. Fundamentally, the medical schools in colonial Africa have been patterned after the medical training in the colonizing countries. So the medical schools in Nigeria, Ghana, Uganda, that were colonized by the British, have left templates for medical education that were patterned after the British systems. Differences are the patient population. So you'd find fundamentally um, good foundational structures for training. But you've got a different patient population and different nuances that might be environmentally driven or genetically derived. You also have, in several African countries, less availability for sustained funding of institutions, as well as less efficient infrastructures. So for example, technology might be challenging for a medical student whereby you might read about technological advances that you don't have the access to. You understand the theory, but the practicality is not there. And so depending on where you are, you may be deprived in those aspects and you may have to seek that by leaving the country like I did. Um, 
populations in general across the world, my experience is that you have stratification of society. You have those that have and those that don't have. And, you know, you have, you know, privileged, you have black privilege and white privilege. And you have the same privilege in African societies. And you have those that are deprived. And you have the poor, the elderly, the disabled. And in healthcare, we come across that confluence of all strata of society. So the experiences in medical school, depending on where you train, you may be dealing with a lot of rural health issues, more so than you might see in New York City, where I trained as a postgraduate fellow. Um, of course, compensation models are completely different. Over here, private practice is generous as compared to over there. Now, there are people that that do very well financially. In fact, even more so back home in Nigeria than in America, simply because of market dynamics mm. due to the scarcity of specialized people and the massive need for their skills. So it's a mixed bag and it's an interesting evolution and experience over time. This episode is brought to you by Five Star BDM. Five Star BDM is a professional consulting and advisory group keenly focused on business development services for small to mid-sized businesses and entrepreneurs. Although every business is unique, they often share challenges that can be addressed through smart branding. Services include process improvement and operations, digital strategy and transformation, business intelligence, digital marketing, and personal branding. Our five-star business and personal branding company has helped a number of professionals and organizations to optimize and grow. The result is more business, more opportunities, better reach, positive outcomes. Please visit www.5starbdm.com to learn more and view all the episodes of Follow the Brand. Interesting, interesting. Uh, thank you for those viewpoints. I, I want to shift the conversation just a little bit. And I want you to, to look at this from a standpoint that if you have the ability to change healthcare delivery, and I can only speak to the United States model, everyone talks about how challenging it is because it is in the application of healthcare delivery from a medical standpoint, from a payer standpoint, from just a patient experience. Now you are a consultant. If you could make changes that would be enforced in policy, what changes would you make? Well, that's a very good question. So I think fundamentally the industry, the healthcare industry uh, in the United States uh, and the industry comprises a value chain that goes beyond health systems. It includes, you know, public health, like Health and Human Services, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, including NIH, the FDA. It's all public health. It includes health systems, of course, hospitals that are now aggregated into many hospitals. 
It includes also um, medical device companies and biopharma companies. There's a broad value chain. To answer your question, um, it is not a secret that the health industry here, while it is very sophisticated and dynamic, um, delivering value to the patient. If we, if we take a step back and understand that industries and businesses are generally designed, should be designed to drive value to all stakeholders in that value chain, but should be able to identify the primary customer. And in the health industry, the primary customer should be the patient. Everything should be structured around the centricity of the patient and driving value for that patient. How do you define value in healthcare for a person who is sick? You want good outcomes. You want the best outcomes at the best cost. Now, in the United States, we deliver, for the most part, good outcomes, but at an, at an inordinate cost. And part of the reason for that is the fragmentation into silos of the different players in the value chain and the lack of accountability for providing and receiving insight from the customer. So a customer, a consumer journey, a patient journey through the health system, the health industry is complex and difficult if you have chronic needs to see healthcare providers, either in their clinics or the hospitals, ambulatory centers, urgent care centers, it becomes very complex and very expensive. So there's a large opportunity and one of the reasons, if not the driving reason, reason why I actually left the bedside, there's an opportunity to engage in meaningful conversations with industry leaders across the value chain about the imperative for transformation, but to go beyond just talking about the imperative, to be able to articulate how this transformation can occur whereby value to the consumer is codified and delivered, whereby the industry is held accountable for responsible and disciplined cost management without compromising quality care, and whereby the data and analytics infrastructures are in place for consumers, for patients, to make informed choices in their decision-making around where to go and what to expect. None of what I've described is rocket science. It exists in businesses outside healthcare, but we've been challenged in healthcare for a number of reasons, regulatory issues, you brought that up. And the case in point is we know that access to healthcare by way of healthcare coverage improves outcomes. It improves the health of populations therefore creates resiliency of the population and society. It also spins off a, a multiplier, economic multiplier effect that drives economies. We know this, how still yet the United States happens to be, uh, has a very aberrant position when it comes to providing healthcare for those that can't afford it.
Well, yes, we have Medicare and we have Medicaid. But as of last year, I think, if I recall right, the statistics suggest that about 30 million Americans remain uninsured. And about half of those are black and brown people. So we have difficulty in the United States coming to terms with does the government, you brought up regulation, does the, and policy, does the government, does a government that is endowed as being the richest economy in the world, largest economy in the world, the sophisticated medical intellect and technology, is there a responsibility to provide, to close that gap in those that aren't insured, to provide some form of coverage for everybody because it's the right thing to do and it stimulates the economy and improves population resiliency. 2010, Affordable Care Act came, was approved. Um, that's 12, 13 years ago. And still, as of today, there are about 15 states that have refused to embrace the Affordable Care Act that has been shown since inception to improve the health of populations and improve outcomes and improve economies. And it has not been embraced by everybody. Um, and this has nothing, this shouldn't have anything to do with politics, but it does have a lot to do with politics. So regulatory issues that many of which are in place as relics of the Jim Crow era, you know all that better than I do, but I've studied it. The limitations in access to housing, the redlining issues. If you fast forward communities that were redlined in the 1940s to today, you will find that those same communities are deprived of resources in 2022 and 2023, limited access to education, denied mortgages, even though civil rights laws have broken those Jim Crow laws down, but in practicality, they still exist. So we have the relics today of contemporary manifestations of segregation and inequity that permeates all facets of our society and definitely in healthcare. Um, the U.S. health system was deliberately built to be separate, very deliberately so. And you know the history of segregated hospitals. It was designed that way to be unequal. And therefore, creating for policy, regulatory processes and accountability for integration has created tension. And that is one of the reasons why we hear a lot today, more so than ever before, this complex conundrum about health disparities and what are we going to do about health disparities in the United States. But what is not well known is that health disparities exist even amongst Caucasian Americans. And while the most provocative and volatile experience is the black and brown experience, the industry, the U.S. health industry in of itself, because of its fragmentation, because of its lack of value codification and delivery, 
because of how expensive it is, the industry itself can do better for everyone. I'll stop in a second. I'll just give you one data point. Maternal health, maternal mortality in the United States, 2018 to 2021, four years, 18, 19, 20, 21. For 2018, 19, and 20, maternal mortalities in white women in the United States was higher than maternal mortalities in Hispanic women. Now, in black women, it was off the chart. And each of those demographics had increasing mortalities over successive years. 18, 19, 20, Hispanic was lower than Caucasians. And in 21, Hispanics superseded Caucasians and Blacks were off the charts compared to both others. My point here is that there are maternal mortality um, aberrancies that are impacting white women, and that's because of the industry. Mm-hmm. So we've got an industry problem. There are significant disparities in suicides off the charts with white Americans. Amongst Black and Hispanic Americans, suicide rates are much lower and have stayed flat over five years, but they have exponentially increased in the Caucasian community in that same time frame. So we've got a disparity problem, which is a reflection of the industry problem. On top of that, you layer the issues of systemic racism and bias and unequal access to treatment and disparate treatment. So we've got a bigger problem, which is an industry problem. And I want to be part of that conversation that galvanizes intellect to create sustained solutions. I couldn't agree with you more. You framed a very good, vivid picture of what population health looks like. When you look at the United States, let's say if it was a patient of itself, where were the symptoms that were causing you know, the, this uh these poor health outcomes. You know, we have a sick patient here and we have to heal. I think one of the things that has been on the docket for a long, long time in the United States is that it has to live up to its creed. And maybe that goes kicking and screaming, but that has been the problem that we have not treated everybody with the same uh I would say the, the the same rights as everyone else. And it is is very apparent. I know in the civil rights era, we had a lot to do with what I call overt racism. And I think that a lot of that was, you know, seen and it was on the books. But covert racism, you can't force somebody to to engage with someone else unless their heart says this is what they want to do. Unless you start seeing someone as a human being, then then you don't. You don't see them on, on those same level. There's disparities in everything in, in life, but certain things are definitely detrimental to all of life. So I agree with you in your in your assessment, and that's something we really, I truly believe, we have to mature as a as a as a country and as a, a as human beings that we need to treat each other as human beings. And I've heard that from other people, such as yourself other CEOs, different hospitals, 
you know, going back to their core roots, going back to true belief systems that tell us that we must treat each other equally. Because if you start to lessen someone else's experience, ultimately you lessen your own. So we, we've got to get uh, beyond that. But before I let you go, I always like to ask this question. I want to ask this question of you. If you had to describe your brand, what is the Yale brand? If somebody was, you weren't in the room, somebody, you know, a whole group of people, they were talking about you. What do you think they would say? <laughs> well, um, people often ask me, what is, what do I want my legacy to be? And I honestly, the truth of the matter is that I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, don't plan to have a defined legacy. Whatever it turns out to be is what it is. But I will say that I've tried to amplify my work across my clinical career and even more recently beyond it uh, to be that of a, a physician who has, has demonstrated a track record of preparation, both from a clinical perspective as well as a, a business perspective. I went to business school to get an MBA in my 50s. And when I look back, I asked myself, who does that? Uh, but I, I did that. And, and that has informed a lot of parameters of my personal and professional life. It's informed my discipline. It's informed my clinical intelligence, the need to be a relevant role model to people that look like me and beyond. When I say beyond, to be a role model to non-black and brown society and leaders to educate them that others that turn up that are different from you can enable you to shed those biases just based on how they show up and how they turn up. Um, and ultimately, what I learned very early in my career residency in New York City as a doctor treating black and white and other races is that if you deliver value to a human being, over time, it is likely they trust you, come back to you. And racial biases, if you save people's lives and their families see that you're doing this, you're doing this with empathy, you're doing this with humanity, and you're delivering care at the highest level of competency, then patients, families, and secondary, your peers, this engenders respect and admiration. And if you were to ask me what I seek to do, I seek to do that every single time I turn up and show up and turn up at work and every single day in my personal and my professional career. Well, I'm sure everyone in that room who just spoke about Yale, that's exactly what they were saying. They probably would have added a few more things there that you definitely are a, a role model and that you are a pillar of strength and, and intelligence and experience and wisdom that is much needed uh, today. So I truly, truly feel blessed, number one, that you've spoken to, to me and you're speaking to our, our audience and that we take up the mantle and we continue to move things forward. So if the audience would like to get in touch with you, what, what is the best way? Um, email is the best way. My email address is 
B-L-A, which is Y-E-L-E dot Aluko, that's A-L-U-K-O at E-Y, E as in Edward, Y as in yellow, dot com. Excellent. Excellent. Well, this has been wonderful. I also want to encourage the entire audience to, you can tune into all the episodes of Five Star BDM at www.5starbdm. That's B for brand. That is B for development and for masters.com. So I want to thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity and for all you do. Thanks. All right. Most welcome. Take care. Bye-bye.